0: If you have a Bible, if you could turn in Colossians chapter three, we're also going to be going back and forth between Ephesians chapter five. It will also be projected up behind me if any of you would like to follow along that way. So this morning as we continue our series within a series, we're teaching through the book of Colossians right now, but we're doing a mini series on chapters three and four on gospel-formed relationships, how when the gospel entered our life, it changed everything, including the way that we relate to one another. And this morning, we're going to be looking at how the gospel and what the gospel has to say about parenting and what it has to say about a child who honors their parents. And we're going to look at this idea of gospel-centered parenting. I'm really excited about this. This has become a real passion of mine. I'm in um, the age range where I have kids ranging from five until 13 years old. So when I read books, often there um Anybody here that's ever been a parent feel helpless and feel like you have no clue what you're doing and you're making it up as you're going along, right? All right, so I'm not the only one. So that's why I've been entrenched in the scriptures and prayer and reading on this topic. Um, It's unfortunate that my kids are in here now. You know we're making it up as we go along. But, um, well, don't hold that against us, and I won't hold all your silly stuff against you. So um, another thing that I want to announce is, uh, before we get into it by way of preliminary, is when you get into messages about fatherhood, motherhood, children, children, Um, There are baggage that come along with these things, whether it be pain, whether it be having a prodigal child, whether it be that you're just here and you are not, you don't have a child. Um, I guarantee you this message applies to everybody. And it's very myopic to say just because I may not have children that this doesn't apply to me. If you are young and you're here and Um, you're single and you're thinking about having children in the future, I would encourage you, store up as much scriptural wisdom as you can during a time such as this. Um, But even if that's not your case, if um, just parenting presents its own set of difficulties. I promise you that this does apply to you because we're going to be spending, I looked at my notes, about 70% looking at the fatherly heart of God, and that applies to every single person ever created in the Imago day who's ever walked this earth. Just to let you know ahead of time, again, by way of disclaimer, this will be different than the world's concept of parenting. So if you're not really acquainted with biblical or gospel-centered parenting, if you are new to the faith or maybe you don't know what Christianity is all about, you might hear some things that surprise you that are new to you. This might be a little bit different, but as we look at God's design, our prayers, that's, this would be beautiful. So let me define what I mean when I'm going to be using the word gospel-centered parenting a lot, so this way we're all on the same page and working off of the same definition. So what I mean by gospel-centered parenting, I think I have a slide up here, is looking at the fatherly heart of God that we see demonstrated through the gospel, seeing how God in his grace shepherded us to an understanding of that gospel, seeing how the gospel addresses the dirty heart that led to the bad behavior rather than just dealing with the bad behavior. This is the ding, ding, ding moment here. This is going to be the thing that we're preaching, that we're not just trying to look at behavior modification. We're going after the heart, in which is, uh, like Calvin said, is the idol factory, the creator of all idols. And lastly, in gospel-centered parenting, it's seeing how the truths of the gospel continue to mob us into obedient children and children of God. As Tim Keller has famously said, the gospel is not just the doorway in which you walk into Christianity. It's not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A through Zs of Christianity. It does not save us. It continues to sanctify us and transform us into the image of our Savior. So the reason that I'm taking time by way of definition is because gospel-centered parenting is going to be very different than three different approaches that I'm going to be unpacking. The first being moralistic parenting is what I'm going to be calling it. So if you hear me talk about moralistic parenting, this will be the definition that I'll be applying to it. Teaching your kids to have good morals, but not helping them to understand why those good morals are important, or a transformed heart that produces those morals and or virtues. So these morals actually become an end unto themselves. Be good, don't drink, don't party, don't drink, smoke or chew, hang out with girls that do. I'm not going to tell you why, I'm just going to tell you um, just don't. Um, This type of parenting typically, and I'll bet you in a room full of rebels like you, I was trying to find a nicer way than you to say that, but um, I would bet that there are people here that have been bred into rebellion through moralistic parenting. You're going to push this hard? You're going to make me do things that I don't understand? You're going to make me just kind of fall into line and never actually address the heart? Well, watch how hard I can kick back. Um, Nobody wins in that scenario. The second, which is much like it, is behavioral modification parenting. This is reactionary parenting. The kid is caught in a negative behavior and told, don't do that, do this instead. Uh, It's incredibly common. It is probably the most common and also the laziest form of parenting. And the root of this is just addressing the wrong behavior but never spending any time bringing Jesus Christ to bear on the heart in which the bad behavior emanated from. This type of parenting often produces children who have a dichotomy. They are obedient around the people that they need to be obedient around. Yes, I will give Sunday school answers around my Sunday school teachers, but they behave very differently around others because behavior modification parenting does not attack or change the heart. The third, and this has just been oh so prevalent, especially over the last 30 or 40 years, um, especially in movements that call themselves verse-by-verse preaching, which is just atrocious. Um, not, we believe in verse-by-verse preaching. That's why we're going through Colossians. But if your verse-by-verse preaching leads you to what I call Bible story parenting, which is the type of parenting that's very common in evangelical circles, where you hold up a Bible character and you say, you be like this person. See how Abraham obeyed? You go be like Abraham. doesn't tell you that he sold his wife into prostitution. Don't be like that, Abraham. Be like the Abraham who obeyed God, and it was credited to him to righteousness. See how David was a man after God's own heart? Well, he also had adultery with Bathsheba and got her husband killed so she didn't know that an illegitimate Jerry Springer baby was on the way. But um, we're not going to tell you that part of the story. Make sure that you be like David. Can you see how that would confuse somebody? You're going into school. You think it's rough? You think that this is the lion's den? Let me tell you about a lion's den. You ever hear of Rackshack and Benny? Rackshack and Benny was a lion's den. So go be like Rackshack and Benny who obeyed even though it's difficult. The problem with this is twofold. Look at this. Hear me. Every religion has heroes who are held up as examples, and simply following heroes doesn't make you a Christian. The story in the Bible are not to be read as hero centric. They're to be read, well, in a way they are, but there's only one hero that they're about. They're Christocentric. They're intended to make us look to Jesus. They are not heroes as an end to themselves. A great example is Tim Keller said, we have Esther, and you don't tell your children to go be like Esther, who said, if I perish, I perish. That Esther was just to point us to the greater than Esther, Jesus, who said, when I perish, I perish. And I will take up my life, and I will take it back, and I will credit it to you. So why say be like Esther when you could say, Esther understood what it was like to be like Jesus. And let me explain to you what it's like to be like Jesus. And this type of parenting produces Pharisees and legalists. So that's not what we're going to be talking about. What we're talking about here this morning is gospel centered parenting. And with this type of parenting that goes after the heart, it approaches the same way that the gospel of Jesus Christ went after our. Hearts. The aim is for a transformed heart that then produces obedience as an act of worship and as an act of the gospel's work going on inside of the heart. If you're a young parent here, I told you this is for everybody, but Marcy will tell you that every conference that I go to, she gets the weepy phone call when they do the parenting or the marriage message, and I call her up, and I'm like, I know that I'm such a terrible husband. I'm sorry. I just want to repent. That's because the scriptures have great stuff for us to learn and apply. So if you're here, take this stuff to heart. I think it's accurate. And if it's not, then take me to task about it afterwards. So we're going to approach this topic very, very similarly to how we approach the series on husbands and wives. In the message on husbands, we looked at how Jesus... Loves the church, and then we looked at how, in order to obey the commandments to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we need to love our wives in the same way. And Pete did a great job of breaking down what it looked like when Jesus loved the church. And our message to wives we looked at how the church submits. Jesus and Jesus submitted to the Father and saw how in order to obey the commandment to submit to our husbands in the way the church submits to Jesus and Jesus submits to the Father, we are called to submit in the like manner. This week, we're going to be looking at our heavenly Father and the way that he loves his children and how if we're to love our children the way that the Father loves his children that we are to emulate and seek to love them in the same way. That's what it means to be transformed into the image of God and his likeness. So this morning is going to be a call to gospel-centered parenting. Just like last week, I'm going to flow seamlessly between Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 because they are parallel passages, so that's why we'll have them projected up behind me. Um, Anybody ever memorize scripture in a different way? Um, translation of the Bible, and you realize that now what you uniquely have when you start to share a scripture is your own Spanglish version of scripture. Well, I memorized Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 at the same time, so I might swim back and forth between the two. Um, it's in the scriptures. You can, it'll be up there, so you can see that what I'm saying is from the Bibles, but it might get Spanglishy for a minute. So Jesus, I'm just going to ask that you would bless the actual preaching of this scripture and use it for your glory in Jesus' name, Amen. So it starts off with a message to children in verse 20. It says, "Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Obey your command. Obey your parents is the same sort of commandment that submit was in the previous passage. It's very straightforward. Paul does not see the need to explain it a whole lot. He just comes right out and says it like it is. Don't you love that about Paul? I I love the way that Paul sees an issue and he's just like, boom, here it is. The Holy Ghost gave me this. So if you take issue with it, your issue is not with Paul. Your issue is with the Holy Ghost. And like we said last week, Paul was able to take some things for granted that we're just not able to take for granted in this society. So I will spend a minute or two qualifying just because language is important and words are important. Paul was able to just come right out and say, children, obey your parents. The only defense he really offers, which is at the end of verse 20, is where he says, this pleases the Lord. Look, that should be enough. That I should be able to say amen right there. Children, obey your parents. What are you here for? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You have a passage right here that is pretty much just, where do you think they got the Westminster Shorter Catechism from? Verses like this. It's saying, this is pleasing to the Lord. So if you're a Christian, you want a life that's pleasing to the Lord, here's a verse that says, do this. This is pleasing to the Lord. I could just send you out of here, but instead I'm going to be a blowhard for the next 20 minutes because that's my job. Um, so I'm sure that Paul never really envisioned that there would be a day that there would be so much pushback against this verse that he just lays out. Doesn't give any qualifiers to. There'd be so much pushback that we give kids trophies for being little turds just because we don't want their little snowflake egos left out. And in fact, if you want to see just how serious Paul saw it, if you look at two lists in First Timothy and Second Timothy about the law and the usage of the law, he lists disobedient to parents amongst such things. I'm not making these up. You could go look them up. It's First Timothy chapter one. Um, amongst such things as adultery, lying, slander, murder. I actually get the opportunity to go into prison and visit with murderers on a quarterly basis. David Berkowitz, whom you may have heard of, the son of Sam, has become one of my closest friends over the last 10 or 12 years. And it's always a joy to go and see him. But he's always reminded of the murders that he committed. And Paul doesn't say, hey, here's a couple of tears. We got the murder tear. We got the sticking needles in your veins tear. And we got the disobeying your parents Here, He just says, knock it off. None of this is befitting of the Christian. So he sees it as pretty important. Even if you hear that and you think, hmm, that's pretty silly. That might be laughable to some that something like Disobeying parents might be listed in a list like that. Again, I'm telling you, if you have a problem with it, it's not with me. It's with the Holy Ghost. It's right there in 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can go and read it for yourselves. So what does this mean practically? It means children, unless your parents are trying to lead you into sin or hurt you or abuse you or harm you, and I know that those things are realities. That's why I give this disqualifier. That's happened to some. I know people here that have grown up underneath that kind of tyranny. But unless that is the situation, you are called to simply obey, even if you think you're smarter than them. Hey, I went to college. My parents didn't. That's my situation here. Um, that guy that just pretty much runs everything on Sunday mornings back there, I don't mean to blow up a spot. He didn't go to college and he's provided for his family better than I've been able to so far. And I've gone to like 83 years of college. And you know what? I'll never be wiser than he is. I'll never, not in this life, because the older I get, guess what happens? You could see it if you just look at the gray in his beard. The older he gets as well and the wiser he gets. So even if you think that you're smarter than them, Even if you think, oh, well, they don't get it because things are so much different now than they were back then. I mean, you guys didn't possibly have the things that we struggle with. Even if your friends' parents allow them to do things that your parents might not be cool with and you think that your parents are just being squares and they're old-fashioned, this passage still just calls you to obey your parents, and it doesn't qualify it. So if we qualify it to the point where we take the meaning out of it, what I want to let you know is what that's actually doing. It's exposing your heart. If you have to take Scripture and say, let's find as many words as we possibly can so that we could take the edge off this Scripture so that the Scripture doesn't mean what the Scripture says, that's exposing your heart. Heart. Why do you feel like we need to take the true calling out of a passage in order to soften it? Let me ask you because I've run across this last week as I was studying the passage of wives submit to your husbands. I've run across it in countless commentaries as I've talked about, as I've read children obey your parents. Do you think you're doing God a favor by dulling down the words that His Holy Spirit chose to put into the scriptures? Like, God can never really mean a word like submit or obey, because this is 2018 we're talking about. Man, maybe back in like 33 AD, those words were cool, but we're so much more advanced than, advanced than what? God? The one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever? I think he knew what words he was picking, and I think he picked them rightly. So like I said over and over, this exposes a heart issue. Well, then there's the caveat of what if my parents are non-Christian? Look, I don't see an out just because the parent might be a non-Christian. In fact, I see passages that seem to suggest that a non-Christian is often won to Jesus through the submissive humility of the Christian. What if my parents worldly and I'm such a solid Christian and they are not? I have it in fortunate amount of kids ask me this during my time in youth ministry. Sometimes when a young person gets saved, they just catch fire. And they look at mom and dad as if their walks are mediocre compared to their fire-filled life. Why aren't you on fire like me, dad? The very fact that somebody would ask that question demonstrates that they're not as mature as they think they are. If you don't believe me, go and read Genesis and look at the one son who tried to expose his father, and then look at the two sons who tried to cover his shame because there was maturity that ran through that. But I want to reiterate what I said over and over last week, and I want to say it over and over this week. This is a heart issue that we're dealing with. This passage is not looking for eye-rolling obedience that could be so prevalent. It's about your heart. And a young person, if every time you're asked to do something, you're either rebelling in action or in your spirit, I want you to know you have some real junk going on in your heart. And ultimately, it's a gospel issue because the gospel is supposed to kill our spirits of Rebellion and replace it with a spirit of humility that yields to Christ. So as we go on in our passage, it actually begins to switch now. And the passage switched from children to parents. Look at verse 21. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's interesting that the first commandment on parenting in this passage is to not provoke a child to anger. Listen to this quote. This is from a commentary that I found over 100 years ago, but it still rings so true. I think it's projected up behind me. The first counsel, meaning the first counsel here in Colossians, on the subject is negative and probably references a common pagan habit against which Christians needed to put on their guard. Irritation of children was common through loss of temper and violence, And disciplining them through capricious and unsteady treatment and unreasonable commands. But more especially, which is so common, by parents being violently angry when the children disturbed or simply annoyed them, rather than when they deliberately did wrong. That's talking about the folly of disciplining your child out of anger. Do you think that that still happens today in 2018? As much as the commentary that I got from 1918 when I read this. So it's not, it's a call to not discipline them in anger, but to shepherd their hearts in love. And you could see two verbs that actually contrast going in here provoke versus in Ephesians 5, it talks about bring. One has the idea of pushing your kids' buttons. The other has the idea of shepherding your child's heart. And then after the first part of the commandment to the parents, the rest of the commandment is to love and raise our children in a manner that our heavenly Father loves and raises his children. So Paul uses specific examples of discipline and instruction, but instruction and discipline are pretty multifaceted terms. They could take on a lot of different applications. So we are going to kick out the parameters and have some fun with this. Turn over to Ephesians 1, and I want to show you guys 12 ways. This is the thing I'm most excited about. All of that was kind of preliminary because I just want to get to this sort of crescendo that I'm so stoked on 12 ways in which the Father loves us as his children. First of all, he chose us. Ephesians 1:4. If you belong to Jesus there was never a time that God did not love you. Get that through your head. Do you know that you're loved here today, child of God? If you belong to Jesus, there was never a time that he did not love you. People want to fight against the doctrine of election so much. Instead of theologizing it, why don't we see it as you were the wounded mutt that had nobody to, no reason to pick, And he went to the store and could have picked all of these purebred puppies. But he said, I want Gimpy over there to be my kid. You are the island of misfit toys. I don't know how many times I have to tell you. You're the squirt gun that shoots jelly. You're the train with the square wheels. You are the spotted elephant. That's who he came for. And not just came for, but chose. chose. He said, I want the Misfit Toys. When he looks out, he looks out at the Island of Misfit Toys, and he says, I'm in love with the Island of Misfit Toys. I died for the Island of Misfit Toys. I chose them knowing that it would cost me my very life in order to be able to call the Island of Misfit Toys to myself. He always intended on being your loving daddy. How cool is that? All the times I rejected the gospel, I heard the gospel clearly and pristinely for the first time when I was 13. Rejected, turned my back on it, over and over and over. And that whole time, he said, I'm not going to stop desiring being your daddy because that shows you to lay my affection upon you. Number two, he adopted us into his family, meaning he actually wants you. In his family, you're not an illegitimate child because he wants you. He always planned on having you as a part of his family. You are not an accident. Even when you were at your most offensive, get this. That's what Romans 5 is all about. While you were at your most offensive is when Jesus said, That's who I want to be my kid. It's like he went into the foster program and said, give me the rowdiest Gregory of a child, and I'm just going to take him and wrap my arms around him and love him or her? The very fact that he loved you when you were most offensive shows that he's always been doing the work of wooing you into his family. Number three... He pursued us when we were going astray. He wanted you when you did not want him. Luke 15, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. The Father loves you so much. Check this out. He didn't take no for an answer when you decided to rebel against him and push against his advances. He said, I'm going to love you anyway. And rather than take it as an offense... Or rather than give you the cold shoulder, he responded through reckless and relentless pursuit of you that did not stop until he brought his prodigal home and was able to put his signet ring on your finger and be able to enjoy the fatted calf. That's the whole story behind the three parables in Luke 15, that the father actually runs towards rebellious sons. Who's grateful for that today? Are you grateful that the father runs towards rebellious sons and daughters? Check this one out. This one might be a little bit counterintuitive. Um, He loves us enough, number four, to hate our sin. His heart breaks when we destroy ourselves. I've talked to so many people. I remember evangelizing somebody that they said, I never could believe in a God who would hate And my response to them is I would never, ever believe in a God that doesn't hate. And I'll break that down to you. But I see those stupid bumper stickers all the time that hate is not a family value. If it's not, then you have some terrible family values that really need to be worked on. It most certainly is. And I'm going to explain it, and I think you'll agree. What kind of father would he be if he allowed you to dive headlong into your own destruction and was indifferent about the things that you were choosing to destroy yourself. In my addiction, when I was choosing all of these things that were destroying me, what kind of father would he be seeing me walk in the throes of addiction and not saying, I love you, Eric, but I hate the things that are being done to you and that you're doing to yourself? It's self-destruction. That's not a good father. I remember this story and i brought a little prop here i went to west virginia and i was working in the meth capital of the world in appalachia down in a holler in st albans and there was this little tiny methodist camp that we used to go to and it was just it was crystal meth land that's what it is out there but that was supposed to be the one safe haven for kids to come to, and we went there and we baptized like 15 kids, and it was beautiful. We were just seeing the Holy Spirit work. Went back there like seven or eight times, and it really felt like the Pied Piper each time we'd go. I'd go down to the creek, I can't call it a creek, because that's improper when you're talking about West Virginia. We'd go down to the creek, and there'd be people just wanting to get baptized, when you went down to the creek, ain't that right, Jolie? You're from West Virginia, right? So, Miss Rita, she was all of like four foot nothing, we were sleeping on the ground in front of this place, and the meth dealers came out to start selling meth to these 12, 13-year-old kids. They were bunking up there. And she came out with a baseball bat, and this was their car. <laughs> and I got to watch this lady just crush the car of a meth dealer. It was awesome. You going to tell me that there's no hatred that's a part of love? I watched Hatred. They was so born out of love that day. I was like, man, this woman loves these kids so much that she's willing to put her life on the line to be able to protect these children. Sounds like a certain Messiah that I heard of who put his life on the line in order to go after his children. For the father to really love, he has to practice hatred for those things that destroy His kids. Number five, he forgives us. 1 John 1, 9, for those who confess of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can never exhaust the father's forgiveness. No matter how many times I sin against him, check this out, this might be you today. You might be here and you're like, man, here I am hung over again. Here I am having fought with my wife again. Here I am repenting of the same thing again. Did you know that he doesn't look at you and say, Here you are again, same junk, you ever gonna learn? Don't you know God helps those who help themselves, Benjamin Franklin 316? (laughs) Man, thank God that that came from the mind of pagan Benjamin Franklin and did not come from the mind of our Savior. God helps those who had no prayer of helping themselves. That's the gospel, and it's the whole point of the gospel. Number six, he instructs us. That's, in the parallel passage in Ephesians 6, 4, the aspect of God's fatherhood is brought out in that passage. He doesn't leave us to try, for us to try to blindly figure it out on our own. As a good father, he finds many creative ways to instruct us. He left his word, his very heart, on paper. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, John chapter 1. He left his spirit, who he said would instruct us in all things, John chapter 14. He left his church to provide a community to be able to help instruct us and live a godly life. Number seven, he defends his children with a jealous love. That's what the whole book of Hosea is about. Gomer is running away and choosing to run after the nations and to prostitute herself out to those who are abusing her. And we have all of this lovely imagery of God as Abba and Daddy. And we usually love that imagery. But to those who harm his children, he is a relentless warrior. And we see that over and over that your God loves you and protects you with a jealous and zealous love. And he defends his kids with a vengeance when necessary. If you don't believe me, read through chapters uh, 22 through 58 of the book of Isaiah and see how God feels about those who would come and persecute his chosen ones. You have a warrior daddy who is zealous to defend you. Man, remember the whole my dad could beat up your dad game that you used to play when, my dad's 6'6", like 250. So unless your dad was Frank Savannah, I always won that game. I always got to be like, my, you can sit, my dad could beat up your dad. When there's persecution that's coming against you, you have a father who burns with righteous indignation that his children are being marginalized number 8 he teaches us the gospel Hebrews 2 3 says how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which was first declared ginomai it was taught to you by the Lord as a good father he instructs his kids in the gospel the disciples pick this up in the ministry of Jesus you see it kind of come to a head in John chapter 6 don't you when Jesus says uh, and they come to him and they say Jesus you were pretty popular and we were kind of into hanging out with the in crowd you're not so popular anymore and he's like that's cool you want to peace out too and they're like well no where should we go Lord you alone are the one who has the words of eternal life you're the one who instructs us in the gospel Number nine, he disciplines us when we go astray, Hebrews 12, 6. The writer of Hebrews actually puts it this strongly. He says that if the Lord doesn't discipline you, then you're an illegitimate child and you have no part of him. Pretty strong words, right? We don't like to think about that aspect of the Father, but I want to show you why you should want to think about it because it sure beats the alternative. If you don't believe me, go read Romans 1, 18 through 32 and see what happens When children do not respond to discipline and he just continues to give them over to their own debauchery and they go and slide down that scale. Even though discipline is uncomfortable for a season, I just mashed together a bunch of scriptures. There is something so comforting in knowing that the God of the universe is so intimately involved in my life and knows my heart so well that he knows exactly when and how to correct it. Does that comfort you today? Because the heart's desperately wicked above all else who can understand it. Jeremiah 17, 9. But I have a father who can look in here and say, Eric, what's wrong? Why are you off? Can I help you and bring some correction into this area? Number 10, I need to move along here. Um, But I could just preach on this all day long. Um, Terry Mills gave me the permission to preach all day long. Um, But I know that... That wasn't a vote. You didn't take a vote, did you? Yeah, so just because one person said that doesn't mean I can. Um, but if you want to take a vote. Um, he, he sacrificed for us, number 10, and he was pleased to do so. Isaiah 53.10 says that it was the Father's good will to crush him in doing so he knew that he would have a ransom for the many. Hebrews 12.2 says that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We think of Jesus' sacrifice as well we should, but think about it from the Father's perspective. Think about Isaiah 53.10 where it says the Father was pleased to crush him. Can you even wrap your minds around that? Parent, if you're here, could you wrap your minds around just being so full of love you're saying, I'm going to crush the ever-living everything out of my son because in doing so, I'm going to get a treasure that didn't want me to begin with. Wow. That should take your breath away. And if it doesn't, check your pulse or the pulse of the person next to you. That verse tells us the father was pleased to sacrifice for his children because in doing so, check that Anybody who's older... And you get to have those holidays where all the kids are around the table. Is there anything more precious than that? When, you know, uh, your son flies in from California, got another kid who comes in that even though he only lives 20 minutes away, he's too lazy to ever visit you. Um, (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. Um, But isn't there something just so precious about when you get to have them all around the table? That's what it means when it says that the father was pleased to crush him. He's going to get to have you all around the table someday and just be able to kibitz with all of his children. Man, number 11, he does not base his love upon our performance. He actually tells the Israelites that so many times. He says, I didn't love you, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 6, for anything that you've done. Forget that so often. Get this. Please get this and I've got a lot more to say, so I'm going to just stop looking at the clock because I hate that thing against the wall. Um, If he didn't choose to love you because of anything you've done, that now that he does have you in familial covenant relationship with him by the death of his son, why would he stop loving you based on anything that you've done? Do you get that, brothers and sisters? Do you get that, that you're not going to just weary him to where he says, this is one too many times that she's done the same thing, and I said if she ever does it again that my love is just going to be run out. He's God. His very nature is love, and he's not going to run out of it, and it's not based on your performance. Performance Performance-driven people cannot get this through their heads. I need to perform so he'll love me. No, he loves us, so therefore we perform. The last one on our list, and then I'll make these practical for us, is he never stops being our daddy. Second Timothy 2.13, that um, he tells us that there's no way that we could possibly out his love for us. The father is never going to say that I'm through with you where sin abounds grace abounds all the more this means he's too faithful to stop being your father even when you stop acting like one of his kids how cool is that so now I'm going to take each of these make them practical as we prepare to close and each of these they're true of the way that the father loves his children and we're called to love our children in the same 12 gospel centered manners he chose us he always chose to love us. From the moment those kids are born to you, you have a responsibility. You're called to love them and protect them with a tangible love to provide practical love in the verb sense, not the hallmark sense, to provide an environment of love and emotional security. He adopted you into his family. He wants you in his Family, Look, your kids should never, ever, 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 ever have to doubt their placement in your family. It should always be evidence that they are a gift to you from God. Listen, the father never stopped seeing the prodigal as his child, if you want proof. Look at Luke 15. He doesn't say, hey, Pharisee boy over here, I love him, but pig swine kid over there. Um, He's kind of on his own. He never stopped loving you, even when you were a prodigal. Brothers and sisters, if you have a prodigal that's out there, please take this to heart. And I wanna just take condemnation off your shoulders because from what I've heard in counseling, there's no self-condemnation that beats being a parent that has a prodigal child out there. What I wanna share with you is the greatest father in the world has more prodigals than anyone ever. One so much who even turned on him and turned him to be nailed to a cross. So if the greatest father has a relationship and family full of prodigals, why should we be surprised if we do too? Amen. So we need our children to be assured that they're loved, even if their sin is separating them for a season from being able to engage in some of the family interactions around the table. You say, look, your sin might be causing a distance, but it sure is not putting a break in our love for you. He pursued, he pursued you while you were going astray. He wanted you when you didn't want him. Fa- parents, learn from your heavenly father on this one fight fight for the hearts of your kids this isn't passive fight with everything in you fight for the hearts of your kids you have one shot at this you don't get a do-over on this fight for the hearts of your kids pursue them if they act like they don't want to be pursued you know what that means they need to be pursued even harder It doesn't mean press away because my ego is hurt because you don't like it when I pursue you. It means that I'm gonna lean on the Holy Spirit and learn how to love you in creative ways because the ways that I'm working and doing it are not working, so I'm just gonna continue to rely that he's gonna give me wisdom that I do not have. If they act like they don't wanna be pursued, pursue them harder. As a Calvinist, I believe in his irresistible grace. I don't understand I'm just going to give you a soapbox here. I don't understand why people push against Calvinism. And I'm going to give you a big reason. Irresistible grace. I don't care about election. Take that one off the table, okay? If you want to talk about, hey, I don't understand um, different parts of the tulip. I don't care for right now. But why would you ever want to deny irresistible grace, which says that once God has set his mark on you, he'll pursue you until you're his? You know how grateful I am for that? You know how much I shook my fist at him and didn't want him? And he said, boy, you think you can run? I can run so much faster. I'm going to chase you down until you're mine. Pursue your kids like a lovesick Calvinist. Number four, he loves us enough to hate our sin. His heart breaks when we destroy ourselves. I hear too many people just accept the oh boys will be boys mentality, that's rubbish. God is such an artist in his love that he loves us enough to hate our sin, love us, the sinner, and it's never in question. Get this, your father loves you so much that he'll never stop hating your sin. But thankfully he views your sin through the lenses of Jesus Christ. Your kids need to know two things about how you view their sin. If you get nothing else, if you're a note taker, take these down. This is just bangerang stuff right here. You love them enough to hate their sin because you know that God's created them for something so much greater and you're never going to stop loving them no matter how they continue to struggle with that sin. Let me repeat that. You love them enough to hate their sin because you know that God has created them for something so much greater and you're never going to stop loving them no matter how much they struggle with that sin. That's the gospel. That's gospel-centered parenting in a nutshell. Son, I hate what this is doing to you because it can only lead to destruction and separation from God. But I love you and will never stop loving you, even if you continue to choose these things that I hate and that hurt me to watch you go through. Let me uh, start to wrap this up a little bit quicker. He forgives us. A good parent is a gracious parent. Your child should never have to wonder if they can come to you to be forgiven by you, just like we should never have to wonder if we could go to our Heavenly Father and be forgiven by him. Teach your kids a solid understanding of grace and forgiveness is the greatest way that you could pass on the gospel to your child. Sitting down with them and getting down on their knee and looking at them in the eye and grabbing them by the shoulders and slowing down and saying, honey, what you did was sin, and there's consequences for that sin. But our Lord Jesus Christ paid the greatest price for that consequence when he died on the cross. And he did it so that he could forgive your sin. And the Bible tells us that if we confess of our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He gave you a cosmic do-over in Christ. So because Jesus forgives you and I am a believer in Jesus and he forgave me, you know what? I forgive you as well. You think that goes a little bit deeper than just walking through four spiritual laws with your children? It gives them the chance to see the gospel in action. He instructs us. Parents, God is radically involved in the instruction of his children. We're responsible to teach our kids to hear the Holy Spirit and to understand and to love God's word. Parents must not abdicate this or farm it out to someone else. It's not your Sunday school teacher's job to teach your kids the Bible. It's not your health school teacher's job to teach your kids about sexual relations between a man and a woman in God's economy. It's not the TV's job to teach a boy how to respect a woman and it's not Facebook's job to teach a young woman what she should look like. Do you get that? I get an amen? You're your parents' teacher. Everything else is supplementary. He defends his children with a zealous love. I've got a couple more, and then sorry I'm going long, but this is just critical, critical stuff that I've wanted to teach on, so I'm going to stop apologizing because I'm just going to be staying here after you all leave, so it doesn't matter anyway. Um, your kids should know that you have their back. They should know that their hurts are not an inconvenience to you. I remember going to the park and Eric Bergstrom is going to love that I'm sharing this. I won't get as animated as I shared it the last time, but there was this group of kids that were bullying my child and the dad was sitting there just drinking a beer and watching it. And finally I got so mad that I said, "Stop picking on my kids." And the father came over and said, Why are you yelling at my kids? I said, I'm not. I'm yelling at you. (laughs) Learn how to be a father. And he got up to about here, and I said, You're going to regret it. I was mad. Fathers, you should be mad. If somebody's hurting your children, because your heavenly father, if you don't believe me, read the book of Hosea, read the book of Amos, read the book of Jeremiah, read when Jesus says about a millstone and the weight of it tied around a neck, if you don't believe me, that the father does not want his children to be abused by others. You need to defend your children. They need to know that you are their protector. But not it doesn't stop at that. You point to him and you say, I'm your protector because you have a sovereign protector who never stops. He never sleeps or slumbers. The God of Israel is always watching over you. He teaches you the gospel. Number eight, parents, you can't make your kids accept the gospel. That's a Holy Spirit transaction. But you can make sure that your children know the gospel inside and out, and you could devote your life to putting them in opportunities where they can hear the gospel being fleshed out. You can make decisions now so that your children are fluent in the gospel. Friends, if you don't get anything else from today, please get this, that if the only understanding that your kids have the gospel is saying the sinner's prayer, the gospel will become irrelevant when they become older and start to experience conflict because they're not going to have a basket to be able to put it in. They need to know that their sin is offensive to a holy God. They need to know that God is not just about them being a better, more obedient kid. They need to know that Jesus forgives them no matter how bad they blow it. They need to know that seeking satisfaction outside of Christ is a big deal because it reveals a lack of saturation of the gospel, and they're never going to find what they're looking for apart from him. It's got to go deeper than just the sinner's prayer. He disciplines us when we go astray. Hebrews actually tells us the primary evidence that we're his. Parents, let me encourage you part of discipline is your God given right to put your foot down on spiritual things. Somewhere, and if you've believed this lie, I want to take a second to dismantle it. Parents started to believe the absolute hogwash that I can't make my kids participate in the things of the Lord. Baloney here's the deal. You have two choices. Can you go pay your own rent? No. Okay, you're coming to church. That's it. Those are the choices. Can you go and provide your own meals? Can you go take care and fend for yourself? No, you can't. Okay, well, in this house, the gospel is of primary importance, and we're going to put you in a place where you can hear it. And you know what? They might not be as resistant as they think, as you think they are. I remember sitting there when my parents would bring me to church. And this guy Phil would preach the gospel, and my eyes would start to get that little, I don't know what, it, what you call it, it's like this little water reservoir underneath. <laughs> and I knew you were looking over, Mom. I, I knew that, like, is this finally getting them? <laughs> is, is my dirtbag of a son finally hearing this stuff? And I would <laughs> suck those things right back up, No, I'm not hearing it. This makes no sense to me. They had no clue what was going on in here. And you have no clue what's going on. It's worth the fight to get your kids out the door and say you will be in a place. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. He sacrificed for us and he was pleased to do so. I only have two more after this. We've been talking a lot about justifiable stereotypes. There's a stereotype of the absentee father or the stereotype of the undermining wife. Well, if there's two things you want to do to watch a dad cry, either play butterfly kisses <laughs> or you don't even have to sing the song. You could just give, and the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. And you're like come on, Dad, you want to go have a catch? What I'd really like, son, is to borrow the car, keys. See? I see like four of you crying already. Um, There's a reason that that song resonates, because it's a stereotype, isn't it? Many kids have grown up with a dad who would not sacrifice his career for the sake of being a dad. Look, career came first to many, and then dad became second thank god that's not the way our father views us our kids to know need to know that we are willing to sacrifice for them for their benefit and that we don't see it as a sacrifice david livingston was asked about losing just so much of his life losing family out on the mission field of africa and he says how dare you call sacrifice that which was no sacrifice at all for my reward was seeing the sweetness of jesus manifested in an area in which i've never seen it before that's not sacrifice. They need to know that that's how you view them or you're leaving it up for them to guess. And part of that may mean that you might need to make a choice to have a little bit less of a lifestyle so that you can be the parent that you choose them to be. New Jersey, this is your idol. This is your idol. Let me max out my lifestyle, work every single hour that I can to have a lifestyle that I never needed to begin with so that I could give my kids a bunch of stuff that they don't even need, that they're going to break, that they're going to forget about, so that they could be sitting in a counselor's issues uh, room talking about their daddy's issues years later. Too many people in their desire to give their kids the best have forgotten that the best thing that you could give your kids is a mom and dad. They don't need more stuff. They need a Jesus-loving mom and dad. They don't need more stuff. They need a Jesus-loving mom and dad. Number 11, he does not base his love upon our performance. This is the truth that really taught me gospel-centered parenting. I remember to go here. I know his name is not popular now because of some things he's fallen into. I heard Tolian Javidjian preach, and he talked about seeing his two kids just taking toys from one another, and his MO was just to say, hey, stop that. Give this toy to them. But he actually got down on their level and said, look, here's the deal. I think you should share with your sister because God in Christ has shared everything with us. And he set the example of what it is to share. But I want you to know, if you don't choose to share, there might be consequences for that. But it will never affect the love that I have for you. So you doing this is not a love issue. I'm going to love you the same Whatever you choose. How much more powerful is that than just here? Take it. Give it to them. And I remember just crying as I heard that, that God's love is not tied to our performance. You know how radical that is? You know many people still struggle with that, even in an old age? And the last one, he never stops being our Father, there's rarely a time that I discipline my kids that I don't share that at the end. And I can say this with truth because I have my kids sitting here in the room hearing this. But in the Bible, there's rarely a time when God disciplines his children where he doesn't repeat, I'm the God of Israel. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to love you and set my mark upon you. And when I look to the gospel, I see a story of no matter what, no matter what I've done, my father will never stop being my father. That's the radical nature of gospel. It almost sounds like lawlessness, doesn't it? But it needs to be the radical paradigm shifting gospel that our children are brought up with. And what we're going to celebrate right now is it doesn't matter your worthiness as you've come to this meal. Your father is still your father. And we're going to celebrate the fact that he was broken to bring you back to himself even while you were at your most rebellious. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your divine fatherhood and how beautiful it is. In Jesus' name, amen.